0: Hi, everyone, it's Brent Adamson, and welcome to the Gartner Sales Podcast, the podcast where I sit down with our best thinkers, researchers, and leaders from across the company to share with you both the practical tips and the most up-to-date strategic insights you'll need to sell more effectively, especially in a time of uncertainty like well, like today. So I, I'm especially excited today because I'm joined by my long-term colleague and friend and co-author, Nick Toman. Nick is the chief of research for both our sales and service practices here at Gartner. Nick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Brent, it is always a pleasure to join you, and uh, hello to everybody out there.
0: So Nick, this is going to be a lot of fun. So what we're going to try and do it across, the next I don't know, 30 minutes or so, is to take like, I don't know, 10 hours of content, four years of research, and pack it into a small bullion cube of insight.
1: Maybe a, good a lie, decade, right? maybe a decade of, of research, really, but uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so so let's get, let me give everyone a sense of what we're going to be talking about today. So we recently published a, a document, which uh, everyone can find, Gartner clients can find on Gartner.com. Around sort of the what we we call it the vision deck, uh, and it's a leadership vision for 2021 specifically for chief sales officers. Maybe Nick, we can start with just like what is the what is this deck? What is the point? Of, and then we'll dig into the content, of course. But what's the what's the vision of a vision deck?
1: Yeah, the, the, the vision of a vision deck. I like that. Brent is is really this is meant as a, a really a tool is the way I think about it for CSOs to communicate what some of the biggest uh, most load-bearing trends are out there in the world of sales. And uh, we we envision this as a document that leaders will weave into their strategic messaging uh, to help evidence to their teams what is happening more broadly uh, in the marketplace, what is happening more broadly with customers, what is happening more broadly with technology as it would uh, intersect with those customers, and really paint a vision of where we believe sales is is headed and, and a path to get there. And so it is meant as kind of a a multi-use tool. And and what we welcome here at Gartner is the opportunity to help you all as sales leaders and CSOs, weave this into your your strategic communications, uh, share this with your teams, have creative discussions around what this means for your organization, draw out the implications, and and from there really begin kind of a jump off point into further action with Gartner. So this is meant to set kind of the strategic tone for CSOs for the next, really Brent, two, three, four years as they think about kind of the outlook for their organization. And one particular
0: thing that's interesting to me about this 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 particular uh, specific deck, uh, which again, everyone can find on Gartner.com, at least clients can. So under leadership vision for 2021, chief sales officer, when again, of course, we'll link that in the show notes um, and send you a link over to Gartner.com. But the uh, I don't know that we've done this before, Nick, which is the deck is meant really as a standalone. So yes, the deck captures sort of our big thinking, which we're going to go through here in a moment. But it's also meant as a package, which in other words, we've actually taken the time on virtually, I think, almost every one of these slides to put some talking points, some notes. It's almost like scripting so that you as a leader can download the deck and self-serve on the insight. You've got the talking points there. You can take slides and build them into your own presentation. So it's it's meant to be beyond sort of the insights it contains. It's meant to be an actual tool, a helpful tool for, for anyone looking to build these kinds of presentations in their own organization, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no, and I, I think that's the right way to think about it. Is there's a lot of graphs, a lot of graphics, uh, a lot of data. Frankly, that'll have bearing on you know what's happening out there more broadly. And uh, we we hope that that our clients use it, uh, kind of disaggregate the deck. And uh, if you have questions around you know, hey, uh, Gartner, can you slice or dice the data in this regard? Can you help me get to a little bit of a tighter understanding for for my sector? You know, we're happy to take on that conversation and always available to help you with that. So. Um, use away, uh, use liberally, and let us know if, if there's anything more we can be helpful you know, in and around communicating this, this significant strategic vision. But, uh, but with that, Brent, you know, we, we can dive in and give folks kind of the, the thumbnail, if, if you will, of, of really where our research has kind of come from over the past decade and, and kind of our outlook, if you think about those next two, three, four years and what, what we see as significant, significant trends on the horizon.
0: 100%. So the way this deck works, and really sort of a lot of our thinking really, because this is representative of it, is it boils down to sort of three buckets or categories of, of ideas, uh, all backed by bar charts, of course. <laughs> yeah. and, then, um, and then it kind of summarizes into one sort of overarching theme or narrative, and we can land on that here in a minute. So let's talk about these three buckets of, of ideas. The first one, so I'll, just, I'll name them and then we can dive into them one at a time. But the first one is what we call decreasing seller access. Uh, the second one is increasing buying dysfunction and the third is legacy commercial operating system challenges so so if we take them one at a time uh, we go let's start with decreasing seller access and really I think in many ways Nick this, the whole idea here is is to kind of talk a little bit more about the challenge that chief sales officers have been sharing with us for the better part of the last two or three years which is, It becomes really, really difficult to sell large, complex B2B solutions when your customers won't talk to you. (laughs) So, If there's one challenge I think we've heard more often than not across the the client base of the Gartner sales practice, irrespective of industry, geography, go-to-market model, is is this challenge of decreasing amounts of access that our sales reps have to customers. A customer is empowered with information, their ability to learn on their own, do their own due diligence, talk to others. Don't feel the urgency and certainly the urgency as early as they have in the past to even talk to our sales reps um, as they have in the past. And so that there's a caveat here, which is quarantine and COVID seems to be sort of a there's a there seems to be more access now through virtual than there is in the past. But broadly speaking, there's this narrative, Nick, that um, that it's just it's literally hard to get in front of your customers and have the conversations we need to bend the deal to our favor, whether it's virtually or in person.
1: Yeah. And I think not just hard to get in front of them, it's hard to get in front of them in a, in a fairly timely manner, you know, to help to help them really understand and think differently about what they may want to do with the business. So, um, you know, Brent, our, our data, and we, we've been tracking this for some time, kind of this access challenge. And some of the, some of the listeners may remember, I mean, it probably goes back you know, maybe even over a decade ago, um, our, our 57% data point where, you know, 57% of, of customers, uh, uh, or to, sorry customers were about 57% of the way through a purchase on average you know before they would uh, pick up the phone uh, which is kind of funny to say that even because who picks up the phone any longer um, but outreach to you know a sales organization and, and really wish to speak with a sales rep at that point in time and we've kind of continued to see that that trend play out over the years but more more pressing I think is just how much time as you think about the entire process of buying something that a customer goes through just how much time, the customer's ultimately spending with a sales organization in any capacity. And and what our data tell us is that that number is about 17% of the total purchase time, Right, all the decisions, all the meetings, all the cajoling that happens inside of an organization, uh, the norming, the consensus building. Out of all those different activities that are happening, 17% of that's meeting with potential suppliers. And, And more urgently, as we all know, you know, on average, there's going to be about three suppliers that are competing now for that small 17 percent wedge of, of time with a supplier. So on average, you know, you're getting maybe as a supplier, you're getting maybe five, maybe six percent of the total time a customer is putting into uh, into the entire commercial journey, if you will, their decision to purchase something. Now, I think, Brent, on, on one hand, we, we see that as as terribly frightening and, and sort of urgency driving in and of itself. But I think conversely, there's there's kind of a glass half full view uh, based on what else is happening inside that buying journey, isn't there, Brent?
0: Well, there is, and the the, you know, it's funny because when we talk to heads of sales about the, this, whether it's five percent or seventeen percent, but this vanishingly small opportunity that we seem to have to influence customer thinking through our sales team is that the, the natural inclination from sales leaders is think, well, I've got one of two options to address this, or at least try to, I don't know, solve, address this, which is one is how do I claw back more time? How do I win the right to get to to have more time with my customer either through you know to, like different kinds of conversations, more valuable input. What is it that I need to do and do differently to win the right for more time so I can get at least a bigger part of that 70% yeah, wage right. if not more. Expand that 70%, yep. It's exactly right. So the flip side is, okay, well, let's just take it as a given. I'm a taker, not a maker here. So I only get my five or 6% uh, amount of time of total purchase time. So what can I do? to be as valuable as as possible in the time that I do have. And I think both those questions, to be fair, are completely legitimate. They're the right questions to ask. We spend a lot of time talking to heads of sales and leadership teams around what can sales reps do to offer more value. But to your point, Nick, there's a... There's a totally different way to look at this altogether, which is those are there's a, a third way, right? Which is what if there was another channel to our customers altogether that isn't through our people? We often think that you know, well, customers use digital channels, online searches, things like that, for learning early in a purchase process. For and and we on uh, on the flip side, we think of it from a supplier perspective as it's a tool not for selling so much, but a tool for engaging, right? So it it's owned by marketing, it's up funnel, it's about demand gen. If we can capture their attention. And uh, we can engage them with something of interest, and eventually that will spur them to think about a purchase. And at that, that point, we stamp them as marketing qualified, cinema to sales. And say, okay, now you can start selling. But I think what we've clearly seen from from the buying side, from the customer's perspective, is that that all of this online engagement isn't just like getting ready for buying; it is buying. And I think that's a critically important distinction that we have to understand: is that. Um, One is that no matter what buying job you might be engaged in, whether it's problem identification, solution exploration, requirements building, supplier selection, we see that customers through our data, and this is all laid out in this document, are just as likely to use digital channels as they are in-person channels to gather that information. Uh, And then second, in terms of timing, while customers are certainly very likely, in fact, almost with almost like with certitude, right? So it's like 94% likely to use digital channels early on in a purchase process, they're almost equally likely, particularly millennials, are in fact equally likely to use digital channels late in a purchase process, long after the sales rep has got involved. So we have to start thinking about these as like, you know, we we tend to think of these as serial, like first the digital, then the in-person. From a customer's perspective, it's parallel, right? It's in-person and digital are just two different channels that send me information that I can access at any given time for any given job and and we're just not managing it that way from a supplier perspective and I think that's going to be critically important going forward as we start thinking about how do we use all of the different channels that we have access to our customers at all times across all jobs to 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 influence that decision making process
1: but I think I think Brent it, it's it is it's a it's a really fair point and I think you know to be fair to a lot of CSOs out there it's not like you know we're not paying attention to some of the marketing channels or engage with colleagues who may own marketing, or in some cases, you know, CSOs who, who also happen to oversee the marketing function. But I think uh, when, when we really step back and we look at what needs to happen here with a customer who is truly uh, channel agnostic, right? Uh, they're very comfortable in kind of any and all channels engaging with a commercial organization, be it sales reps, be it digital channels, uh, be it other sort of assets or tools you might've built out to help them. I think uh, we see some pretty common trends or themes in and around how that information presents itself and and chief among them i think in many cases brent is 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 just consistency and having a consistent viewpoint and and to your point having information that helps customers across the entirety of the purchase process i think in many cases we we as commercial leaders assume digital well that's front of funnel It's really about kind of sparking interest, uh, maybe capturing someone's attention and kind of pulling them into the funnel that way where we hand them over to human channels or assisted channels and and try to move them towards conversion. And I think the reality is we see in our data, to your point, uh, not just millennials, but every generation using these digital tools and, and kind of switching between live and digital tools across the entirety of their purchase process, serving different purposes. In the early stages, serving learning purposes, just trying to understand what's available to me, what options might I have, uh, how should I even begin to think about solving this business problem, let alone what vendors you know might be able to help me with this business problem, and, and who might have solutions that happen to fit into that. Uh, but then later on, in the deciding phases, right, uh, and trying to understand, you know, how do we deconflict some of the the points of view that we're seeing out there? How do we get everybody internally? you know, the decision makers on board with this, you know, fighting some of the political fights that might might need to be fought, where, you know, some of our data, our perspective as suppliers could be helpful to that customer. So I think really rethinking the digital opportunity, kind of soup to nuts, right? Beginning to end of funnel and having consistent information across those touch points. And and we just, I mean candidly, we don't see that on balance right now across most commercial organizations, do we?
0: No, we don't. So each of these three sections ends in a set of what we call critical implications and really kind of critical questions that we all need to be asking ourselves as as sales leaders. and And a couple that we could sum this section up into because I mean this really profoundly changes how we think about selling going forward in ways that, if you're in marketing, will feel very natural. I think, and, and if you're in sales, will in some ways feel very foreign. But the here's a couple thoughts. Which is number one. What does it mean for us as sales organizations? And I think particularly, what does it mean for our individual sellers when your sales reps are no longer the channel to your customers, but a channel to your customers? So we think normally we tend to think of if we are selling, that's reps are involved, sales representatives are involved. And 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 by the way, there's a there's a footnote here, which is I don't know that there's anything in our in, in our data that indicates like this, is the death of the sales rep or sales reps are over and now we just sell through machines. There there is some interesting data we do actually profile here about. Millennials in particular would have told us if they could have a rep free experience even in a complex purchase, they'd actually prefer that. But I don't know that we're anywhere near that yet today. but it's coming over the horizon. So for those of us who haven't begun to think about selling what is so let's, let's not solve for selling let's not solve for sales reps, let's solve for selling. And, and one of the ways that we engage our customers in that selling process, of course, is through humans. But another way that we need to engage our, our customers in that selling process is through digital. And so that it, it takes the thing that we're trying to accomplish as sales leaders and moves it up a degree in altitude from making sellers better to making selling better when selling goes through both human and non-human channels. So that's that's one. The second thing I'd pull out here, which, which we don't really... We don't go after in a a very deep way in this document, but I think it certainly is there implicitly and it's something to pull out, which is I find, Nick, that when I talk about this with sales leaders in particular, but also marketers, they tend to see the story as an either or. It's like a zero sum game. It's the end of selling through humans and the rise of digital and selling through digital. And I think the sales organizations, the commercial organizations that are, really doing, uh, that are really doing some amazing things here, don't see this as a zero-sum game. It's like one goes down humans and one goes up digital, but rather the way you win in this world is by taking the best of digital and the best of humans and creating a an experience for your customers that actually combines them in all sorts of very powerful and interesting ways. So imagine, for example, your sellers are out in the field or of course selling virtually now, but they're using the digital tools and the websites and the the, the different digital engagement, uh, forms of digital engagement that your customers could use on their own so that, so that the whole thing becomes more integrated as opposed to either or. And I think that's what's, and the reason why we have this either or mentality is because of course digital more often than not is owned by a different function than the humans. Sure. Sales reps belong in the sales function, digital belongs in the marketing function. Those are two different budgets. They're oftentimes two different C-suite officers that go all the way up to the CEO before they meet. And it makes it very hard to be thinking in these very integrated ways in a company whose silo structure is not designed to support it. And I think that, that will eventually get us to the third of our three points. But I think that we're beginning to see, I think, coming over the horizon very, very rapidly, a reality in which our own internal functional silos may, in fact, be our single biggest barrier to making good on the promise of selling through multiple channels at the same time.
1: Yeah, and Brent, you know the thing I would add there, and this kind of goes along with the point making a moment ago on, on just consistency across the channels, but you know, harmonization and 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 for the customer to fluidly be able to move between these channels and get similar information, and we don't we don't need to go deep here, but I, I'll just touch on it briefly. You know, one of the things we do see is when there is inconsistency in the information, customer skepticism spikes exceedingly high, and. As you can imagine, you know that 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 stunts commercial progress pretty pretty rapidly, pretty dramatically. Um, but the thing I would I would just kind of leave folks with against the second thought is is really uh, thinking about buying, not selling. And, and I like where you're going, Brent. With uh, you know, we have to get beyond sellers and get to selling as a, as a mindset. You know, and think about this kind of channel agnostically as to how we set up our commercial processes and commercial funnel end to end selling across digital and human channels. Uh, But I I would go a step further and I I would encourage our listeners to kind of mentally go a step further, and really think about it as as buying. You you really need to begin to support the buying experience. And this is something we'll we'll come back to towards the end of our discussion and, and, and unpack a little bit more. But I think just beginning to sort of denominate what we have to do in terms of facilitating the buying across all channels, uh, helps get your mind kind of around what, what the opportunities are and sort of what the friction or rub points are that are preventing us from really leading customers, you know, nicely through this, this, the course of a, of a process, purchase process.
0: hundred percent. So, so the button up our first of our three trends, the decreasing seller access, I think, you know, the takeaway here among many is, um. Rather than solving for decreasing seller access by asking, how do we how do we reverse the trend and increase seller access? Maybe the better way is to think about how do we rethink customer access altogether? Uh, and, and I think that'll take us to a much more productive place. It's much more aligned with how buyers are buying going forward, which brings us to the second of our three trends, which is increasing buyer dysfunction. Because the, the other thing that's really interesting about what we're seeing happening and have watched now for the last couple of years, and we've reported on this in all sorts of different ways uh, across the time, is that is that B2B buying is effectively just broken. Uh, and and it's not just broken because B2B buying is broken, but rather because B2B buying is happening in the context of an environment of of complexity and information uh, overload that just makes it hard, not just as buyers, but as human beings to navigate decision-making in the world that we live in today. And, um, and so this, Nick, I think is a really interesting thing to, for us to consider about, or consider is... Is just how difficult it has become for B2B buyers to make large-scale, complex, arguably disruptive and expensive buying decisions on behalf of their, their organizations. And if I think about it, what we do is we try to dig into this in a couple different dimensions. the two that's probably worth teasing out, maybe we'll take them one at a time, under increasing buying dysfunction is is decision complexity, just the process by which decisions get made inside uh, of an organization. So there's a decision challenge. And then there's an information challenge of just uh, which we can come to in a minute. But Nick, the the decision challenge is the the one that we've documented quite, I think, thoroughly over the years, just the number of stakeholders has gone up dramatically. It's the average sits now around of what, 11, I think is our last number. Many of you guys have seen the spaghetti bowl graphic, which at least that's what I call it, which is the graphic that shows like a typical B2B buying journey. It's like arrows and going in a hundred different directions that, that graphic is in fact in this document, if you haven't seen it before. But Nick, one way or another, I think that the thing that's really interesting is what we're finding is that customers in many ways, is not even so much that they, they struggle to buy. I think the broader story here is they struggle to decide, right? They, they often look at their own organization and think, all right, if I'm going to, if I'm going to get my company on board with buying this multi-million-dollar solution, I got to go this person, this person, this person, probably three other people. I don't even know who they. I don't you know who they are. I didn't know that we had a capital review board. They're going to ask me questions I can't answer. And so, what we're finding is almost like this crisis of confidence that customers aren't even confident. They're not. It's not that they lack confidence in you, the supplier, or you, the sales rep. They lack confidence in themselves and their ability and desire, for that matter, to navigate their own internal complexity. And that's bringing commerce. I was going to say to a halt, but that's overstated, but it's, 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 it's putting, um, sand in the gears of decision-making, uh, irrespective of whatever you do as a supplier that makes it less likely for you to sell complex solutions because your customers are less likely to reach big decisions.
1: Yeah. And, And the end result is, as we know, is, you know, much smaller, less ambitious purchases, much more conservative posture going into purchases, you know, pilots, trials, as opposed to something that's clearly right for the customer's business, and them saying, "Hey, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take this on, uh, and we're committed to getting it done." But um, you know, what's really interesting to to, to me, Brent, is, uh, and this this does go back to the number of stakeholders I- involved in a purchase. And you just mentioned that number eleven, and that's you know, for for very sizable purchases, that number's big. But I, I was just looking at some brand new data, and Brent, you probably haven't even seen it yet, so. Uh, uh, for, for those listening, a little bit of a preview here as to some data coming down the pike, but we just, we just did a, a recent buying survey and we were looking at some less complex purchases too. And, and I was surprised to see the average number of stakeholders between five and six for purchases that the customers unanimously thought weren't complex, you know, were fairly easy. Uh, and back to your, your point around how the gears just begin to sort of grind. When you have that number of people uh, it is that many more opportunities for someone to put, you know, to say, hold on here a minute. And when, when the crisis of confidence does, in fact, begin to emerge. And I, and I think this, this resolving for confidence becomes really critical, not just with the complex purchases, which is where we're going to spend a lot more of kind of our time and energy and where this document really does focus. But even on the easy things that it is becoming equally likely, someone's gonna shut it down, someone's gonna say, oh, hang on a minute here, there's gonna be some form of objection when just that number of people enter into the equation. Uh, and, and we'll get to the information point because each of those stakeholders brings their own information to bear into that purchase. And, and it just creates this really difficult dynamic to get a clean, clear decision made and for an organization to fully mobilize and commit to action. And so you end up kind of with this you know, toe in the water effect where commerce happens, but it just happens a lot slower and a lot more conservatively than, frankly, you know, the customer probably needs it to happen inside their business. They probably need something to happen a little more dramatic, and we see it as suppliers, but it is just difficult to create the right inertia and, and decision-making dynamics. And you really do have to start to think about how do we get all those stakeholders feeling fully confident in the direction they're headed and fully confident in our capabilities and deliver that.
0: You know, and in case anyone's wondering, like why would a relatively small or simple solution have increasing numbers of stakeholders? What's What's interesting to me. This is a story we've tracked from the very beginning of as we watch this number grow, is that in many ways it's our own solutions and the evolution of technology and how technology works that leads to that larger number. Because of course, the the beauty of many of the solutions that we are offering today, whether they're uh, subscription service based or they are, you know, on prem or Whatever, the, and whether they're capital equipment or business services, one way or another, we as we've all over the years built out better and better solutions. Those solutions offer more value to more different people inside the organization. So we can roll up different capabilities, we can roll up different activities across functional boundaries. And all that's great, but it just means that all those different people that that solution now touches. Want to have a say in what gets bought because, of course, it has direct implications for how they do their work and their "quote unquote" workflow. So the uh, so even relatively simple solutions they're simple, but they still have multiple connection points inside the customer organization. They're simple but powerful because it helps IT while helping marketing while helping HR. It's like great now they all want to have a say. It's like mm, that's So so that's where we wind up. So let's talk briefly, um, Nick, about the the other part, the other dimension of, of buying dysfunction. One is just the complexity of decision making. The other one, and we've we've talked about this at length. Than other places. So we can just hit this briefly, but the just the, the information story, which is we live in a world today of not just high quantities of information, but high quantities of high quality information. As we've all gone on the same path of trying to differentiate ourselves based on the quality, not of what we sell, but of how we sell through better insights, better thought leadership. I and mean, show me a CEO who hasn't said in the last five years, at least once, we need to be thought leaders in our industry. And the thing is, now that we have martech stacks and better capabilities and technology and, and strategies around content marketing. And we have better data than ever before. We are all collectively now as suppliers able to produce massive amounts of really high quality insight or thought leadership or research At scale, so we're just kind of flooding the field with really smart stuff, and where that, and we see this in our data. We lay this all out in the in the the document, of course. But where that leaves your customers is not like I'm so empowered with all this great information. Where it leaves them is rather I'm so overwhelmed with all this great information. Everybody's coming at me with really really well researched information, insights that are relevant. They're backed by data. They've got expertise. But you're telling me to zig, and you're credible. But they're telling me to zag, and they're credible. It's so now I don't know what to do. And so the natural human reaction is maybe I should study this more. Maybe I should wait. Maybe I should look at this longer. And so we we wind up in in, in this. It's, very, it's a very similar track to the Barry Schwartz's idea of the paradox of choice, which is um, it, it, it creates a bit of a, a, of a almost like a, a short circuit of learning where it's like I in, in being overwhelmed with really smart ideas, oftentimes that conflict with each other, I feel like I need to actually learn even more, which just... Exacerbates the very problem we were trying to solve, and so this is a. So we should talk a little bit about maybe the solution here, which is this idea of sense making, which is this role of sellers in this world to to help customers navigate and and organize, prioritize, analyze not just the information that we're providing from our company, but all the information out there, which we call sense making. So what's that? What's that? Th- the the thumbnail sketch on, on what what is sense making, Nick?
1: Well, you know, and and, uh, use this sort of visual analogy, if you will, which is really thinking about the sales rep back in the day when we'd we'd sit down and meet with customers live, Um, but but quite literally kind of pulling their chair around on the customer side of the table and saying, hey, let's just think about this. Let's look out at the market. Let's look at all the options, all the different possibilities here that you're considering, you know, my competition as well as, you know, my own capabilities here. Let's look at all of it. And I want to help you think through what the right choice is, given the dynamics in your organization, given the conditions, given, you know, the requirements, but it really is helping the customer essentially go through that process very rapidly of instead of them having to sort of boil the ocean to figure out what direction to go and what's right, really helping them kind of close the aperture down and saying, look, here's the key things you really need to be thinking about, and let's look at what's available in the market. Here's competition A, here's competition B, and here's my capabilities. Let's look at it through the lens that is best for your organization right now, and really helping the customer make sense of it. Now, some people hear that analogy and they say, you know, holy cow, Nick, you can't go there. You know, it sounds like you, you might be positioning your competition in a more favorable light. Uh, what we find is that these, these sense-making sellers, you know, those who embrace the sense-making posture, Brent, we find that actually they, they do approach these interactions in a more, uh, I'll just say it, a more supplier agnostic lens but what it helps the customer do is understand what's happening out there make the right decision and frankly it earns a tremendous amount of goodwill and going back to the point of everybody having smart things to say well i would argue brent those whose ideas are best heard and best processed by the customer will ultimately you know end up in a more favorable light and i think what sense makers are really able to do is help the customer truly assess Is your insight, is your perspective, the right perspective for my business? And if it is, we're locked and we're good to go. And the other point, Brent, I'll just i add to this whole sense-making approach or sense-making posture, is the reason sense-making works goes back to the word we mentioned earlier, which is confidence. Sense-making, and we we show this with a lot of statistical analysis in the the materials, but sense-making leads to more customer confidence. And what we know is that customer confidence In fact, I'd go so far to say it's probably the most important factor in the customer ultimately determining that they're going to buy a higher quality, sort of uh, a bigger solution set, you know, for us, the higher margin, uh, uh, more enriched solution set. And uh, what we find is that customers who have high levels of confidence are about three and a half times more likely to make that kind of big leap and make the more risky purchase, the bigger purchase, than customers who go in and just are a little bit more uncertain and still not quite sure, is this supplier the right supplier? Is that point of view the right point of view? And there's elements of uncertainty. So what we find is sense makers get right after that, to the heart of that, that certainty and confidence and really help engender that, that in the customer because they're approaching it from a, a market neutral, supplier neutral, let's go through this, make sense of it and get you to the right decision they come at it from that standpoint.
0: And the, the key distinction there is it's not customer's confidence in you that matters so much as customer's confidence in themselves and the information that they're considering and the decisions that they're making. And that's, that's it's, I think it's a, if, if you're sort of the liberal arts seller out there, it's like, this, this is like, this is the, what's cool about selling is like, because it's all based on empathy and this understanding of other people's perspectives. And the uh, it is, it's putting yourself in your customer's shoes and understanding where are they likely to lack confidence, not in you, but lack confidence in themselves in their organization, their ability to navigate their organization. So the, the solution set that sits in the center of this document is the the other one, which we failed to mention, which is buyer enablement, which is to become your essentially your, your customer's buying coach. They're buying Sherpa to take them by the hand and guide them through their own internal decision-making complexity that they themselves may not anticipate, and then play the role of sense-making rep along the way. And so so the critical implications for CSOs that we lay out, and again, what's, just as a quick reminder, All of this is in a document on Gartner.com. So clients can go there and download this. And all these talking points that we're making are in the notes, or many of them are in the notes. The document is called the Leadership Vision A Vision for 2021 uh, Chief Sales Officer, because there, in fact, are versions of this deck for other functions as well. So we'll link to that in the notes. But here are the implications for part two. And then we'll just briefly take a look at part three. But first of all, it's just improving the buying experience, improving customers or reducing customer buying dysfunction. It does, in fact, require us, the supplier, understanding the customer's buying journey better than customers understand it themselves. If we're going to play the role of buying coach or buying Sherpa and guide them through their own internal complexity, it means we actually have to know something about and anticipate something about their internal complexity they themselves have overlooked. And that's a very different way of thinking about mapping the customer buying journey, for example, by simply just asking them, hey, how do you buy? So there's a whole body of work behind that. too. what this also tells us is that this idea of thought leadership and saying insightful things to your customer, uh, we see very clearly in our data is that the, the returns on that strategy as a source of differentiation are diminishing rapidly. So insightful thought leadership really, I think, represents no longer just a reliable path to differentiation given today's proliferation of of high quality information. And third, that's your point, Nick, which is the shortest path to increasing deal quality is reducing buying dysfunction. And the way that you do that is the the new currency of the commercial realm, which is solving for customer confidence, specifically, uh, specifically in themselves. A lot of a lot of big ideas packed in here. I told you it was a bullion cube. It's like a little cube with a lot of insight. So let's talk about the the third of our three, and we'll just do this one briefly. But, but all of this, I think, and I, I kind of hinted at this before, so I kind of pre-taught some of this, as it were, Nick. But the... Uh, it lands us in this third of our three dimensions of, or, or, or challenges and issues, which is legacy commercial, the legacy commercial operating system, for lack of a better term, right? Which is the, the infrastructure of our commercial organization, sales, marketing, and now success, maybe even service. If you want to put that in our account management, hunting, farming, all of it, all that customer facing capability that we create often in multiple silos with multiple budget lines, multiple tech stacks. It's no longer consistent with the way that customers are actually buying. And 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 you and I have debated now for the better part of three years. Like is so like what's the band-aid version of this? Like how do I take what I've got structurally and just increase coordination or increase collaboration or have workflows? And I, I don't know, Nick, but I'm I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion that the only way to truly realign our commercial organization to how customers are actually buying today is to blow it all up and start over from scratch. So talk me off the cliff, Nick. I mean, uh, uh, so thoughts here because we have a we have a machine that is designed for a reality, a buying reality that no longer exists.
1: So well, we have a we, we have a machine, machine that I, I think you know. Look, it, it, it was about uh, discipline was is kind of the words that that helped us build this commercial system and running running the playbook. You know, whatever company you happen to be at sort of the 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 acme way of selling, if you will. And that machine was built on a very linear model of progressing customers through predetermined stages using predetermined content uh and and sales enablement and moving them through a funnel in a very deliberate fashion and forecasting off of that all the metrics would run off of that you know deal reviews would run off of that and the reality is as we know brent i mean just just buying doesn't look linear buying doesn't behave linear and when you think about it, to your point, you know, all the touch points we have inside customer organizations—these massive customer organizations—certainly they aren't coordinated in a way that would support any amount of linear progression, you know, even against a single commercial objective. And so I think, uh, you know, I, look, I don't, I, I don't know that we are to the point where we have to declare blow up the commercial machine and begin to restructure it, though. I think we're seeing some really interesting examples, and maybe you can give give the listeners a, a very brief snapshot of one of our, our friends who has, has done some of this, uh, this work and really reconceived how the commercial organization looks and functions. But I do think that at the heart of it, you know, beginning to outline what we would call the buying jobs that a customer has to go through to successfully purchase or procure, you know, one of your products or services, and beginning to align. All those functions we just mentioned, those customer-facing functions against those buying jobs, and creating common sets of, of metrics and approaches to how we support those buying jobs, and singularly placing a focus on helping a customer complete each buying job, you know, just to give folks a sense of what we mean by a you know by buying job, problem identification. Make sure we help the customer identify a problem, check that box clearly, and that they're clear on the problem. And we know from our data, Brent. About 80% of customers revisit the problem. And so while you've assumed perhaps your commercial processes assume they've identified the problem and they're good, half the stakeholders are, are really questioning: did we nail the right problem? Did we get the right root causes? Are we even attacking the right thing? Wait, why are we even here? What are we doing? You know, and those are when those questions pop up. Then the other buying job, solution exploration, another buying job, requirements building, and another buying job is supplier selection. And those sound very simple on the surface. But aligning our functions, aligning our metrics and helping the customer complete those buying jobs, irrespective of the order in which they get through them, helping them successfully complete them and complete them with confidence. That becomes the imperative for us to think about measuring progress, to put in place the right enablement systems, to get our teams moving in the right direction as one to help support a customer who's trying to get something tough done inside their business.
0: You know, it kind of boils down to me like the the traditional, and by the way, this is not a criticism in the sense like, what were we thinking? Because it made a ton of sense as it evolved over the years, even decades. But we tend to think of digital is largely for engaging customers and people are used for selling to customers. So digital is for engagement, people are for selling, right? So whether they're phone-based or field-based, whether they're senior or junior. And we also think, and, and then in turn, we think marketing, they're the ones that handle digital and sales handle sellers, right? But But again, from a customer's perspective, none of it looks like that, right? And we also think, and it all works in a linear fashion so that you do marketing early and then sales later, you do digital first and then people later and your customers aren't engaged in, they don't engage in a buying process in any way, shape or form that looks like that. So I use digital and people uh, agnostically to just gather, I don't need the, I don't need the channel for the sake of the channel. It's like I I always say, like for the thing about a sales rep, I don't need the conversation with the sales rep for the sake of the conversation. I need conversation for the sake of the information. And so what we need to solve for in this world is helping customers increase, maximize maybe uh, their confidence in their ability to make good decisions and do that through whatever channel and at whatever time and and by whatever means we can and, and essentially allow that to happen organically. And this is, again... I, I really, truly do think our, our own internal functional myopia is going to be the single biggest barrier to getting to a place where that happens. Because the companies, there's a, we've just profiled a company, Smart Technologies, which is an ed tech company based out of Calgary. Um, it's a multi-billion dollar technology company. And what they've done, Jeff Lowe is the head of marketing there. Um, Jenna Pipchuk is the head of sales. And they have they have effectively dismantled their entire commercial organization and remantled it. I'm not sure that's a word, but they uh, they've <laughs> oh reassembled God. it. What they did essentially, Nick, what you're talking about. So they sat down and identified what are the four or five key buying jobs that our customers have to complete to their satisfaction in order to make a purchase decision. And then once we've identified those four or five buying jobs, let's just look at all the people across sales, marketing, success, service, whoever it is, let's just take the labels off and say, who on our team is is um, involved in helping customers complete that job? Okay, who on our team is... Uh, responsible for helping our customers complete that job. And it doesn't matter whether it's in person or if it's through digital. And so they redesigned everything around these buying jobs and then they put them together and then they created regional pods um, for you know, and said, okay, for any given region, say the Northeast United States, to arbitrarily pick one, um, do we have members from each of those different buying job teams in that pod so that that region is set up with the expertise across all the different buying jobs and across digital and in person? Uh, to make that happen. By the way, just as a footnote, smart sells through channel partners, just making it that much more complicated for them to execute on this. And the fact that they've done this is re- it's early days, but they're really smart thinking. And I think in many ways, it's this very kind of disruptive thinking that that more and more sales and for that matter, marketing or commercial leaders are going to have to embrace going forward because it's a uh, it just the the infrastructure, the system software of selling and, and, and marketing that we've built, in B two B is just no longer an accurate proxy for the underlying buying reality that is meant to support, and that to me is the single biggest finding uh, that we're all going to have to manage to f- in our research for the next three to five years.
1: Yeah, and, and it does feed nicely into kind of you know, maybe maybe where where we go next, Brent, is just kind of what we what we see as that sort of future vision and this this idea of. Really thinking about the buying experience and beginning to manage explicitly to the buying experience, and the folks at Smart Technologies get it. You know, they have moved away from kind of the classic vertical functional silos and, and functional alignment to a, to a horizontal functional alignment cutting across right those, those classic functions, and and each each one of those sort of horizontal slices orienting to a buying job and. It, it takes, you know, it really does take a not to, be, not to be sort of have a cliche statement here, but it does take a, a very sort of customer centric tilt on even how you're organizing and having a logic to how you're organizing that is based truly in how a customer engages with their business. And I, and I think it takes a lot of courage to go down that path. But so far, so good in these early days. And we'll, we'll continue to track that story. But uh, I, I do think, Brent, you know, that that language, the buying experience is certainly alive and well. At companies like Smart Technology, and, and you know, I think we need to really advocate that more companies begin to think about reorganization and reorienting their commercial teams in and around this buying experience—not just selling or the selling experience, but the buying experience, soup to nuts, right?
0: In fact, if you if you step back and you put it all together, so those are the three sections of the of the the this document that we're discussing today again, which is a. A leadership vision, a leadership vision 2021 for 2021 of the chief sales officers, and and again, we'll link to that in the uh, in the in the show notes. But what's interesting, Nick, is and this was actually never intended. This is the last thing I want to talk about in just a couple of minutes, and we'll, we'll wrap it up. But the um, this was never intended to be part of this document when we first, you and I first laid out the outline. But but after you step back and you look at all of this work and you put all this research together, and you you see the themes that marble through it, you can't help but notice a, a sort of an overarching narrative. Um, that's played out across the last uh, probably about twenty years or so, and will continue to play out, I think, across the next five to ten. Which is the story of like what is the what is the critical source of differentiation for us as a B two B supplier in in the world today? Because you know, because what we're seeing is, and we just hinted on this around thought leadership, is significant diminishing returns on your ability to differentiate yourself in the marketplace based on just saying really smart things backed on lots of insightful research to your customers. Um, and so I'm going to do this very briefly, but it's it, I think in some ways it's the single most fascinating thing that I've seen it come out of our research shop in the last uh, year or two. And I think it's going to be a big part of our narrative for the next two. Um, so stay tuned. But it simply, is, if I think about the last 2002, two, the year 2000, year 2002. So when I first joined the sales prac, all of the talk among chief sales officers at the time was, how do we differentiate ourselves in the marketplace? What is the source of differentiation when our individual products are so easily commoditized or so easily replicated. There's fast followers, there's followers, there's new technology. And so we were selling on these individual products that can now be easily replicated. So we're just winding up in a price-driven war of commoditization. And so we spent the better part of 10 years back then uh, across the early 2000s talking about how do you differentiate yourself, not based on your products, but on solutions, how to become a solution seller? How do I add more value so that I add on additional products and services and capabilities in the world so that such that one plus one plus one equals four, because that allows me to differentiate myself. Not only do I have these three products, but they snap together in a a unique way that allows me to do more than anyone else could by just buying the products individually. You got to buy the solution. You got to buy it at a premium. And we're the only one that can offer it, a la my source of differentiation. All right. Now, so, and and by the way, that's hard to set up that kind of organization's complexity and and cross silo coordination and cross-selling metrics. And so, we spent 10 years trying to help companies get better and better at that and to do it in more efficient and effective ways. Somewhere around 2009, 2010, what happened was that we all kind of played that card out for the right reasons in, in really good ways, but we got really good at it. So companies around the world build out these world-class solutions. But the trouble is our competitors in that same amount of time build out equally Great solution. So now that I've got a world class solution, but I'm competing against another company has got an equally world class solution, And our solutions can not not just our products can go head to head, but our solutions can go head to head, right? So, so what happens when not only do we see as we had ten years early, see we saw diminishing returns on product differentiation, we were now seeing diminishing returns on solution differentiation. So that led to this question: like, all right, so what's next? What's the next window of differentiation? Right around 2009, as many of you know, on the on the call today or the podcast, that's sort of when Challenger hit, right? And the whole idea behind Challenger and Insight, or even if, never, if you've seen that work, the idea of thought leadership really began to take off right around this time, because the idea was if i can't differentiate based on what we sell then let's differentiate based on how we sell how we approach customers with new insights new ideas that not about our company but about their company we show them new ways to think about their world and how they compete and how they make and save money and we're going to stand out because we're having very different conversations with our customers based on insight and that turned out to be a huge opportunity for differentiation across the 2010s until recently but i think what happened in the last about 4 or 5 years of course as i mentioned earlier we all got really good at this, not just really good at this, but we got really good at this at scale with better technology and better data and and clear mandates and, and, and better strategies for marketing around content marketing. We all began to like mass produce really smart ideas. And so in this like smartness arms race, what we've now seen in our data in the last two years is that we wound up not so much in a winning position, but in a tied position where everybody's saying really, really smart things and our customers are now just overwhelmed at a higher level, right? So so what we are we now are seeing in our research very clearly are diminishing returns on being smart. So it's like it was what we sell moved to how we sell and now how we sell is kind of run its course, which is not to say, Nick, that you can stop. So like, okay, so now we can say, start saying dumb things. Like, no, it's like, you still have to do this. It's, it's, it's a really tricky thing about the story, right? Is each one of these steps is like necessary, but no longer sufficient. Right. It's not like you can stop doing table it. Stakes. But, is- right? It's so frustrating because each one of these is expensive and hard. And I just took 10 years to get good at this. And now you're telling me it's table stakes. What? But that's where we are. And so the, th- where, the, but it begs this question, which is, all right. So if it was what we sell and it was how we sell, What's next? As we watch the window of opportunity for differentiation based on saying smart things close, not close completely, but diminish, what's the next opening? What if, As one door closes, what's the door that's opening? And there we think it's not what we sell or how we sell, but how we help. Based on everything we've talked about today, which is this idea of creating these customer centric buying experience is specifically designed to solve for customers confidence through things like buyer enablement and sense making but to offer that experience in a very rich digitally driven way that allows our human sellers and our digital uh, engagement platforms to to combine in very unique ways where where customers can engage in a very rich immersive digitally driven yet human supported experience that helps them feel better about themselves i think and we're just only just now, Nick, aren't we, just seeing come over the horizon like, okay, that's a lot of pretty words, but what does it actually mean practically? And we're only just now seeing what that could look like and feel like.
1: Well, and I, think, I think we're beginning to see even, even glimmers of you know, companies doing this at the most complex kind of end of the solution spectrum, if you will. And, and you know, one example that we, we just secured, uh, uh, the ability to, to share with our, our broader client base comes from Jones Lang LaSalle and here you have a commercial real estate company that you know thought of of leasing a sky you know several floors in a Manhattan skyscraper sight unseen it isn't even remotely on you know on anybody's agenda or radar you know of course you'd have to go visit you know a, a facility in person and engage with the product so to speak and understand kind of how could the layout be configured for your 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 space needs uh, but they have pushed very aggressively and a lot of the the development here fueled by by the COVID pandemic uh, to, to develop an entirely digital immersive experiences where the sales rep, the customer, and these digital assets kind of work conjointly through the process. Everything feeds off one another. All the data points are stored and build this interesting vision of what the customer could do with the space. And customers, lo and behold, are signing substantial leases on you know, big ticket properties uh, th- through this process, sight unseen, entirely virtual, assisted. And this is key, assisted by the sales reps who are using these tools, using these digital assets in ways that have really enriched the sales process in ways that they themselves can't do without you know without having these site tours. And so we're beginning to see at the sort of complex end of the market. You know, for some of the listeners, are going to say, you know, we'll, you know, we'll never be able to sell 100% digital. And, and maybe you're right for now, but one day one of your, your competitors will begin to crack the code on this. And I assure you, I assure you the scramble will begin at that point. And I think we're seeing right now you know, a handful of companies understanding this and saying we've got to get with the times. You've got to get with this sort of omni-channel, channel-agnostic customer who wants to move between digital live and doesn't really care where they are and expects, to your point, Brent, a great immersive enlightening experience that helps them make a better decision where the assets aren't there just to provide information, but they're engineered to make it easier and to induce confidence in that customer to take those big actions. So I think that is sort of the the grand challenge we're laying out here. And we believe, you know, that will have a pretty significant shelf life in the form of just commercial differentiation. If you are able to help the customers buy truly on their own terms and in the way that they want to buy, and help them make these tough, difficult decisions enabled with great digital assets, assisted by sales reps. Doesn't matter how they get the information, get the information to them they need in the right moments. And that is really what we're talking about with this buying experience, is it not Brent?
0: It is. And it's a lot to think about. I know it's, and and we went a little longer today. And so for those of you expecting a 30 minute conversation, apologies for that. But the, uh, the, as I told you, there's so much going because when you were tasked with creating a document that captures your biggest, best thinking across the next two, you know, from across the last several years and projecting out in the future years. This is what you get. You get a you get a 50-minute podcast. But hopefully, again, that gives you guys a sense of some of the big ideas that we're talking about, where they're going in the future, why they matter so much, how disruptive they can be, but also practically what we can do about some of them. So if this is of interest to you, we'd love to talk to you about uh, more about this with our analyst team, our advisor team, who are positioned to go deep on any one of these data points to share with you these examples we talked about today. Or again, you can just download the deck off of Gartner.com, Leadership Vision for 2021, Chief Sales Officer. Um, and and you'll find a lot of these talking points and notes are actually in the notes themselves of the PowerPoint. And we would be uh, more than happy to dive into them deeper uh, with you. There, I cannot wait to see what we continue to learn and what you all collectively and individually do with this research. Because I think we are in um, we're we're looking at a complete rewrite of B two B selling and I think and marketing across the next ten years, if not five and it's going to be fascinating to watch how this all plays out. But for now, we'll call today. Uh Nick, thank you uh so much uh for joining us. Uh, it's always great to, to, we've been doing this for so long together. It's always fun to do it together. So, um and for those of you listening out there, please 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 as always take care of yourself, stay safe, take care of each other. And we will talk to you guys down the road uh, on our next podcast. Uh, We're we're at monthly episodes now. So until then, be safe, everyone. And we'll see you uh, on uh, on the web and uh, with our analysts and advisors. And can't wait to see what you guys do with this. Cheers, everybody.